This show is brought to you by Shazzle Rocks, the Etsy store owned and run by Shaz, a loyal listener of the show. If you too are a fan of the show, then the handcraft dependence she creates using her wonderful talents are probably right up your alley. I couldn't mention this before, but I actually treated Bella to one of Shaz's Tree of Life pendants for Christmas, and I'm still carrying favour for that one. Head along to Shazzle Rocks on Etsy now and buy a gift for your loved one. The link's in the show notes, and you never know, you too may reap the rewards of giving such a lovely gift. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast, with your hosts, Shelley and Bella. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 93 of the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast. I can't wait till we get 100 so I can see how you say that. Yeah, I know. I'm going to have to do something a little bit different, aren't yeah, I? Yeah, yeah. Well, welcome to 2021, guys. Yes, Happy New Year. Yes, hopefully this will be a darn sight better than 2020. Hopefully. Although we are still in lockdown, but, you know, it has its advantages. I'm able to spend each and every waking hour with you. And what's the advantages? I haven't come to that yet. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for giving us that time off. Uh, We really needed that month off in January. To say that we relaxed is probably not accurate because what we have been doing is we've been creating a new website just for you guys, uh, which is going to give a little bit more access to a number of different things that we do. And also it is going to automatically update when we put an episode up, which is going to save me a buttload of time. Yeah, you not me makes no difference to me. <laughs> no, well, exactly. Um, but yeah, so we have been working hard. So go along to our website, www.weirdwackywonderful.co.uk and check it out because it's a labour of uh, love. Really? You sure? <laughs> let, let me do that. Let me do that. Go on in. I love you. Oh, charming. I'm just saying. Say it with feeling. Well, that's right. You said it's a labor of love. Like that. Okay. Gotta let people know you like it. No, I do like it, but it, it has been trying and testing. Oh, you poor to do thing. It. Yes. Honestly. But there we are. You know, it's nothing. What was, that, what was that saying from that movie the other day? We can't say that now. <laughs> not, on the, not on this episode. On another episode. Because this episode, we're getting okay. all serious. We've got a really, really interesting guy coming up for you. He is in upstate New York. He terms himself a paleo-earth researcher. And he uses a unique method of dating ancient archaeological sites. The stuff that you are going to hear today, I'm sure, will blow your mind. It's a cracking episode to start 2021. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Black. Hi, Mr. Black. Hi. How do you do? We are very well, thank you very much. How are you doing in upstate New York there? Well, it's a little cold and a little snow, but other than that, it's fine. Has anyone ever told you that you sound like Neil Sedaka? 
No, you are the first. All right, okay. I could record that. I could make money. Why did you tell me this before? <laughs> well, it's just suddenly occurred to me. I thought, I know that voice. I know that voice. And it's Neil Sadaka. Maybe you'll get people responding to it after this. I don't know. <laughs> I won't ask you to sing. <laughs> good. That's a good idea. <laughs> so before we get started your theory is absolutely amazing and it's something that i'm really interested in i know nothing about but i'm very interested in so first of all before we get started can you tell our audience a little bit about you and any qualifications or experience that you might have that will add a little bit of credence maybe to your theory yes i call myself a paleo earth researcher paleo is a greek word that means ancient so i studied the ancient earth and I don't go back thousands of years. I go back millions of years. And I believe that intelligent life has existed on planet Earth for many millions of years. And what I did is I pioneered the use of plate tectonics. That's the movement of the continents to date archaeological sites. And when you do that, you get very, very old dates in the millions of years. I've written a small book called Secrets of Lost Earth. I've given a number of lectures here in the United States, and I'm working on my next book. But every time I go to write it, I find something else, and I've got to change it. <laughs> if I told you enough. Would you like to hear more? No, that's absolutely amazing. So obviously you're looking at plate tectonics. For people who don't really understand what that is, what is plate tectonics? Well, the continents, Europe, Africa, Asia, North America, South America, Australia, even Antarctica, they rest on large blocks of rock. Those blocks of rock are called plates, and those plates float on liquid rock called magma. Magma is the, the liquid rock in the center of the earth, and when it comes up through a volcano, it's called lava. So they do move very slowly, a few centimeters per year, but they do move. Scientists know the speed and direction of the movement of the continents. And because of that, they can make all kinds of maps. They could tell us where the continents were in the ancient past and where they will be in the future. That's plate tectonics. And I use maps of the locations of the continents with some of my own mathematics to date various archaeological sites. When we actually look at your theory then, one of the most significant differences, I guess, in your theory to maybe the way others approach dating is quite significant. Can you explain the difference in the way mainstream science, if you like, would tend to date some of these finds? Well, that's a lengthy discussion, but I'll try to make it very brief. We got time. What mainline real researchers do is they use a combination of techniques uh, some of the, you can't really date rock, but you can date items found at a site, or you can do what's called context dating, where they take some object, they date some object by radiometric means and radioactivity, actually. Uh, the biggest one is when they dated the impact that killed the dinosaurs, they used radioactivity half-lives from uranium to lead, and the University of Edinburgh dated that at 66 million years. So they use various radiometric techniques or radioactivity. They use context dating, and then they use analysis with other sites. But they have an assumption that 
only human beings built these things, nothing else did. And that makes sense from the point of view of academic science, but it does not explain the oddities on the Earth. They could only be explained by intelligent beings on the Earth at a very ancient time. So I was looking at new ways to do this, and that's why I did this. Would you like to know how I got involved in this? I could tell you how I did this. Yep. Yes, please do. Please tell us. Well, in 2009, I was trying to find an explanation for a place called Harappa. Harappa is an Indian site, uh, Asiatic Indian site on the Indus River. I know we're far afield from the hill forts, but it helps understand where I come from. Uh, Not India, but mentally. I was trying to explain that. And you know, when you dig archaeological, archaeologists, when they make digs, the lowest level is the oldest. When they got to the lowest level of Harappa, they found a city that was burned, that had unburied bodies, and heavy amounts of radioactivity. So I asked myself, how could I explain that? And I started off by assuming, what if some kind of a meteorite exploded above ground because there was no crater and left a large radioactive residue on the ground plus a huge flame front which burnt the city? And then when I did that, I said, well, if that happened, there would have to be other impact craters somewhere along the way so I could trace a trajectory. When I began doing this, looking up impact craters, that's the hole in the ground created when a rock comes in from space. What I found is that impact craters on the Earth arc around the Earth in a skewed direction from southeast to northwest, all impact craters in this arc around the Earth. So I did a little mathematics, looked at a number of maps, and plotted an orbit of around the Earth, of an object in space. I originally thought it was a moon. I began to realize it was actually just a large, massive orbital debris field. Now, that object doesn't mean very much to us now because it's extinct. So the Earth had a debris field, much like Saturn has a debris field, only it was different. And I was able to plot its closest point to the Earth and its farthest point. Its closest point, or paresis, was over what would be today Salt Saint Marie on the American uh, border with Canada, north of Michigan, and its farthest away would be over Tahiti in the South Pacific. And that orbited in that direction. That acted as a reference line. Uh, think of maybe a race. Maybe you start at a building, let's say you when you were school kids, and you started racing. Well, you started the school building to side the race maybe down the block, the street. So now we know that school building is your reference. So by measuring your distance from that building and knowing how fast you run, we can determine how long you've been running. And that's what I'm doing. I could calculate when a place, a geographic location came under this debris field. That's how I began doing my dating of archaeological sites. It seems odd, it seems strange, but it's the only way to explore the ancient earth in the extreme ancient past. By extreme, I'm talking hundreds of millions of years, maybe billions of years. There's no other way to do it. But is that understandable? Yes, it is. So do you think that Earth at one point had rings? The Earth had rings, but they were different than Saturn's rings. Saturn's rings are on its midsection, 
The Earth's ring was a massive field of debris, rock and debris, that were in orbit from southeast to northwest, with the closest point of the orbit to the Earth being over what would be today North America, over the Great Lakes. Right. And farthest away would be over the South Pacific. It's a very unusual orbit. Yeah, And it would be consistent with an object captured or or something that struck the Earth. Did I answer that question? That makes sense, really. It makes it a little bit easier for me to understand it. Now, the issue... When you talk about this, as people say, well, where did this debris field come from? What's the mechanism? Well, science already found the mechanism. They just don't apply it to dating archaeological sites. And the mechanism came from studying the origin of, of the moon. Now, this sounds like it's far afield, but it's not. It's very much part of the origin of the Earth. The current theory on the origin of the moon is that an object the size of Mars struck the Earth four and a half billion years ago, creating a massive debris field which collapsed to form the moon. Well, not all of it formed the moon. Some of it stayed in orbit between the moon and the Earth. And that's what we had. We have the Earth, a debris field, and the moon. That's the system that our ancient ancestors lived under. So when they looked in the sky, they not only saw a moon, but they saw a very bright ring made up of rocks, and they would be, well, you know how bright the moon is at night when it's full? Yeah. Well, just think of rocks in the sky. It would look like a ring of pearls or diamonds in the sky at night. It would be very beautiful and majestic. So they were probably captivated by it. That's what happened. You've obviously used this technique to be able to date certain artifacts around the world. And I know that one, geographically, I suppose, is quite close to us, and that is in Scotland. And there are hill forts that you talk about in your research, both in Scotland and in Sweden. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yes. I'm glad you asked that because I tend to get a far field. The issue with the hill forts is that there are maps produced by legitimate scientists. They're called paleo maps. One place you can get them from is the University of Texas at Arlington. They have something called the Paleo Map Project. You can Google them. There are a number of institutions in Europe that also produce them. And I didn't use my technique for dating. What I did is my my technique for dating led me to believe that there was something unusual about the hill forts. Now, what are the hill forts? The hill forts are encampments at the top of tall hills, in Scotland and in Sweden. They're also in Europe. And the walls are piled about 12.5 feet tall. Some have collapsed. And the walls seem to be melted or vitrified. There's a fellow by the name of John Williams in 1777. And he wrote in a book, in Natural History of the Mineral World, that he mentioned 70 hill forts in Scotland. And he did... And he, could not understand why the forts were in Scotland and not, let's say, in England or anywhere else. He didn't, I don't believe he knew about the Swedish forts. Later on, they discovered the Swedish fort. But two central issues in explaining the forts is not the fact that they're melted, but the fact of why are they concentrated in Scotland and in Sweden? And there's no answer for it. And our current researchers, and I'm talking about very professional very brilliant academic scientists from Europe and the States don't have an answer for it. Well, a paleo map gives us the answer. 
And what the paleo map does, it's a map of ancient Europe. It maps Europe to the time of the dinosaurs. And it explains why. Apparently, Europe was mostly underwater. And it was mostly underwater until the end of the last ice age. The ice age ended between 10 and 12,000 years ago, which meant that Scotland and Sweden were islands. Okay, most England was submerged underwater, so was Ireland, except for a few hilltops. So was much of Europe. So the forts were built on dry land on the islands. They were not built in in England or anywhere else because those land areas were submerged underwater. So now we have an explanation. The hill forts show us that these locations were islands. That's the most important thing. The second thing, since continents move, the paleo map shows us their location in such a way it tells us that they were aligned under the trajectory of the meteorite that killed the dinosaurs. And the way we tell that is we can use a paleo map and we draw a line from Sweden to Scotland. Now, two points can be used to make a line. If you extend the line on a map using a straight edge, let's say a ruler, it will extend all the way to the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula. And on the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula is something called the Chicxulub Crater. That's the impact point of the meteorite that killed the dinosaurs. That impact point, that trajectory was right over the two islands. When the meteorite entered the Earth's atmosphere, it was 6.2 miles wide, it generated thousands of degrees of heat. Now, it takes 1,000 degrees centigrade to melt the wall. That's 1,832 degrees Fahrenheit. But this meteorite, some say, was as hot as the sun, many thousand degree, many tens of thousands of degrees centigrade. And it set massive forest fires and created a huge fire on the surface of the Earth. So in addition to the impact, the dinosaurs were technically roasted alive. Wow. Well, since you have a trajectory and the islands were under it, the fort walls were melted by the heat generated. So what we have is the answer to the two questions. Why were the content, why were the forts built in Scotland and Sweden? And why were the walls melted? And the answer is they were islands under the trajectory of the meteorite that killed the dinosaurs. And that could only happen at the end of the Cretaceous 66 million years ago. So, and that's what we call a sufficient and necessary condition. Go ahead. So unless dinosaurs could build structures, we're talking about humans or at least some intelligence being around at that point to build those structures. That's correct. That's very correct. And that's the thing that's very shocking when I began studying the ancient Earth, the fact that intelligent life existed at such a remote time in the Earth's past. We've had people on this show, and indeed we've spoken about things that have been reported in the past, whereby people have found things like prehistoric batteries, for instance, you know, power sources that have been dug up as part of a fossil. And there's no mainstream scientific explanation for that, other than the fact that some kind of intelligent life must have existed back a lot earlier than what mainstream science says it does. And your theory seems to suggest exactly the same thing. So do you think that, let's call it man, 
you know, do you think man was was wiped out at that point then with the dinosaurs and that's why we then more or less had to start again? Well, I would not use the word man. Uh, the reason I wouldn't use it is the term man refers to what you and I, which are what's called Homo sapiens sapiens. That's what scientists call our species name. Mm. We are Homo sapiens sapiens. The ancients were not Homo sapiens sapiens. They were another species of some kind. Think of maybe a lion and a tiger. They are both large predatory cats, but they're different species or different species of birds. You may have a parakeet, a falcon, a hummingbird. They're all birds, but they're different species. So I would say they would probably some kind of different species. What they are is unknown. And that's because science does not have fossils, does not have skeletal material, and does not have DNA to identify them. So for mainline science, they don't exist. They're fictitious. But the artifacts indicate they had to exist. And if they were not related to us, then they would be something else. This is It's very, very difficult for people to appreciate. But there were intelligent beings on the Earth, the nature of which is not quite known. I can continue. Want me to continue, uh, or do you want to ask a question? No, please do. It's going to make me sound a little off the wall, but I'm going to tell you this. I dated a civilization in Mexico as far back as 100 million years, 103 million years. And uh, I dated the the Yucatan Peninsula, had a civilization, uh, 66 million. I did that when I looked at the orbit. The orbit crossed the Yucatan exactly over the impact crater at the end of the Cretaceous and over a place called Chichen Itza, which is not far because Yucatan is small. There's no reason to build a pyramid at Chichen Itza unless you wanted to build it under the orbit of this debris field. It was decorated with snakes, so the ancients saw this debris field as a coiled snake wrapped around the Earth. And that's 66 million. And then I looked at Teotihuacan. That I dated at 70.3 million. And then Monte Alban at 85 million. And then La Venta, also Mexico, at 103 million. Now, these dates are fantastic. I know they're fantastic. These dates are unbelievable. I know they're unbelievable, but they are very real dates based on my work. But I saw similarities between Mexican artifacts and artifacts from Colombia in the Altiplano. Well, the Altiplano extends all the way to Peru and Bolivia to a place called Tiwanaku, a place called Puma Punku, which is like a, a religious section in Tiwanaku, which is way high in the, and, in the Andes in the Altiplano. And they're supposedly, and this I have to investigate, I, I'm not certain about this, but it's supposed to have similarity to other structures on the planet Mars. This is where we get really far afield here. Uh, And maybe your listeners would be interested in this. But there are some constructions that look like large letter H, capital H. Apparently, those same constructions on Tiwanaku or Puntapunko are also on Mars. And there is a gentleman in the United States by the name of Dr. John Brandenburg, who's a nuclear physicist, who found evidence of. a massive atomic explosion on Mars, the size of the impact that killed our dinosaurs, billions of megatons. He believes that's what destroyed the planet Mars. And he used the data from American, Russian, and 
European spacecraft make this prediction. Well, this is how this all fits together. If he is correct, and I think he is, there seems to have been some kind of connection between Mars and the Earth as far back as 100 to 180 million years ago. His dates go a maximum 180 million years, more recently 45 million years. And if my dating is correct, it looks like it happened somewhere halfway between that, somewhere around 100, 105, 110 million years. It looks like they built a civilization on the Earth that far back. But I'm not saying that is definite. The, the, the dating is made there, but as to whether or not they're extraterrestrials, I can't say that. I don't have evidence to say that. I also spoke to a group of people with a podcast in the United States in Oregon, and we were talking about the possibility of the ancients being like Bigfoot. That is also possible because our science sees humans as being connected to apes. So some kind of human-ape hybrid is a possibility at the time of the hill forts in Scotland. Now, I told you it was going to be a little bit out there, but I gave you fair warning, but am I answering your question? (laughs) No, listen, a lot of our listeners definitely will resonate with everything that you've just said. I know Bella's got a question she's dying to ask you. Go ahead, Bella. You may ask any question you want. I'll say as long as you want. Go ahead. (laughs) I was just curious. So we do have remains and fossils and stuff from dinosaurs, yeah? So why do you think it is that there aren't any, or we haven't found any, you know, remains of these beings that may have been around at the same time. Do you have a theory? Well, I have a fact. (laughs) (laughs) And the thing is, it has to deal with the way paleontology, those are the people who study fossils, discover what something is. Humans are what they call primates. So are apes. And they identify apes and primates from the shape of the head, the orbit of the eyes, and the shape of the jaw. So if you look at the artifacts and the images on the artifacts that from Mexico and from Africa and from Asia and from South America, you see that the individuals have different shaped heads with very large eyes and different jawlines. So even if they found them, these ancients would look like maybe some kind of an animal, not like right. a primate. So they would not be able to be identified as such. And and that's part of the problem. The other thing is that fossils in general are rare, and human fossils are even rarer. And so that's this is the problem. Our science cannot resolve. When I use the word resolve, means cannot pick the detail up. It's like when you have a telescope that's not very powerful. So you really see a moon, but you can't see the craters. Mm -hmm. Or you have a microscope that's not too powerful. You know there's something there, but you don't know exactly what that microscopic life form is. Our science is like that. It cannot resolve the ancient species. They say they can, but they really can't. And they don't know what is intelligent and what isn't intelligent. By the way, there's a funny story about American space program with regard to intelligent life I would like to share. Please do. Several years ago, NASA sent a satellite in orbit around the Earth to determine if extraterrestrials would be able to identify intelligent life on Earth. Well, when NASA sent up the satellite and they got the data back, the satellite could not find intelligent life on Earth. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's interesting. (laughs) The thing is, they explain it by saying it's photographed mostly the South Pacific and all of that. But (laughs) I I think the satellite 
was very accurate, don't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably. So I thought days. you might find that humorous. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'd, I'd like to know what they were looking for because, I mean, even when you look at, for instance, images from the ISS, you can tend to see, you know, lights from big cities from space. So I'd be interested to know what that what that satellite was actually looking at. Well, I, 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 this is a story that it was reported. I haven't followed it up. Uh, you could follow it up yourself, do some Google searches. I haven't. I just thought I'd share it because there are limitations to science. And this is what really, it really is an issue. And science has been divided into very narrow academic disciplines. And researchers do not veer far away from those academic disciplines. They stay closely within them. And they don't comment on other disciplines. That creates a real problem. And the problem is, is that if something is correct for science A, if it really is correct, if it's true, then it's also true for science B or discipline B. I'll give you an example. In mathematics, we have something called addition. One and one is two, two and two is four, four and four is eight. Well, the process of addition is true for both mathematics as well as physics or chemistry or archaeology. All right? So you have to use that. So what's true in that case uh, is also true for the other discipline. And I'll, now we're going farther afield again, but I have to use the example. The example I will use would be the Egyptian Sphinx. Do you know what the Egyptian Sphinx is? Are you familiar with that? Yes, yeah, we are, yeah. All right, I would assume most of your listeners are. It's a large construction in Egypt with the head of Pharaoh and the body of a lion. Well, the specialists in ancient Egypt tell us that it was built 2,500 B.C. or 4,500 years ago. Well, at that date, Egypt was a desert, but the Sphinx has something called water erosion. The wear or erosion of water is different than the wear or erosion of wind and sand. And that was identified by Dr. Robert Schock in the the 1990s. And because it has extensive water erosion, it has to have been built at a very much earlier date than 4,500 years ago. And that's the problem. The specialists, the researchers in Egypt, failed to accept the truth of geology to it, water erosion, and apply it to their work. And that happens in every discipline in the world. And that's because these disciplines are overly specialized. They do a good job for what they have, but they don't go far enough. Well, they don't overlap, do they? That's part of it. There needs to be more interdisciplinary work. And there's there's effort to do that now, but it's a difficult process. But I'll give you another story. Some years ago, I was involved with Mysteries of the Second World War. I wrote a small book about World War II, advanced technology and UFOs, of all things. And I was talking to a PhD professor. He earned his doctorate from Princeton University, which is one of America's Ivy League schools. And he was teaching at an Ivy League four-year college here in the States. And his field was World War II and European history. And I told him the U.S. had the ability to take very high-altitude photographs, 40,000 feet or more, back in World War II. He emphatically argued with me, said, no, that was not possible. It did not happen. So I, as a gentleman, said, please, Professor, 
uh, and I mentioned the name of another PhD researcher at Harvard University. I should have mentioned that, who actually had a contract to make special lenses for the United States Army Air Corps at that time. And then he left. We ran off in a huff. I ran into him about maybe three or four weeks later. And he came up and he was all apologetic. And he said, I am sorry you were right. I looked up the man in the literature. We did have that capability. That's an example. PhDs, at least in the United States, and I would think it's also true in Europe and the rest of the world, are overly specialized. So outside of their area of specialization, they're really not PhDs. We have to remember that. And that's the problem. This fellow specialized in mostly the geopolitical history of Europe at that time, not the military history or, or the hardware of war. And that's an example of why our science can't find these things because of the over-specialized nature. We would say here in the UK that they're blinkered, you know, as those blinkers that you have on horses to keep them looking ahead. That's how we would term that kind of thing here. And I think that's right of mainstream science in general, as you said. And I think that a lot of it is down to the funding that they receive. The funding that they receive very often is very narrow. I want you to research and find an answer to this and they tend to be very single-minded and just go down that one route and i think that's actually held us back over the years well you and i are right we agree with each other and that is a problem but we have to deal with the reality of the way academic research is done and it requires funding and it requires money and you're dealing with tenure you're dealing with all kinds of you know political issues within a discipline so that's the way it is. I, I wish we could change it, but we haven't been able to change it in the States. I don't know if you'll be able to do it in Europe, but... No, I don't think so either. A lot of what you've said is something that will resonate really well with our listeners, especially the idea of this ancient civilizations, these ancient intelligent civilizations, and the idea that maybe they could have come from Mars or whatever, there's that link there. I can go with that because it's like we're doing now. And maybe the old adage that history repeats itself is that we're looking for, if we continue to damage this planet the way we are, then we're looking to find another base, if you like, off Earth. And if the inhabitants of Mars back 100-odd million years ago saw that there was an impending meteor or something like that heading their way, then, yeah, maybe they did come to Earth to try and escape their demise. Well, I can tell you things that are probably... I'll leave them for you. You may want to use them for another show, but I'll just leave you a few pearls. I think they're pearls. There is evidence in Mexico, this is going to be shocking, it shocked the daylights out of me, that an intelligent civilization existed there over... 715 million years ago. Wow. The images found in Mexico, I think they're also called Klaus Donner images. They show images of, of people that had cone-shaped heads. They're in Mexico. And they're found oh, in Mexico. They've been around for about 80 years or so, but not, they haven't been too popularized. In 2012, there were, there were a series of stories written about them, but they actually exist. And the, I mean, the images, they're artifacts and they're actual carvings in stone that show images of individual people that look like that have, you know, they have cone shaped heads. 
which is very difficult for most people to see, to accept. But as part of those images, there was an image that looked like a planet with two rings around it. One was I interpreted as an ice ring, and another one was a debris ring, and then there was the moon, which I was able to identify this as the Earth. And it was an image carved in stone, but the image was from space. And the image shows something very unique. It shows a supercontinent. A supercontinent is when the various continents separate and then they eventually collect together. Then they separate and they collect together. They separate and they collect together. The process takes 250 million years. Well, one of the continents has been identified. I was able to identify it as the supercontinent Rodinia. Now, the supercontinent Rodinia assembled about a billion years ago, maybe 900 million years ago, and went extinct 750 million years ago. So the image, which is totally unbelievable, it's stunning in the extreme. It challenges everything that our science has, ha- has done and will do, is that there was an intelligent civilization on the Earth over 750 million years ago, and which is now extinct. And apparently, the civilization had access to interplanetary spaceflight. Now, whether the civilization originated on Earth or whether it originated somewhere else, we don't know. But the evidence is there. So did you find that as amazing as I did? Yeah, absolutely. And how did we arrive at that 750-odd million years? I'll tell you that. Geophysics, the, the discipline that studies the continental plates, they were able, by looking at the movements of the continents, they were able to assemble the supercontinents from the movements of the continents. To take the continents, they draw them back, you get a supercontinent. Then they, they break them apart and they, and they could see another supercontinent. They break it apart and then they, when they come together, find another. It's all, it's a whole scientific process. It's found in a field of geophysics. And the supercontinent is called Rodinia, R-O-D-I-N-I-A. You can look it up on Google. It was identified about 1990. It's a real supercontinent. And our geophysicists, I'm not a geophysicist, I should study that, but I'm not a geophysicist. They actually found that that continent did indeed exist. It was assembled about 900 million years ago, and it went extinct 750 million years ago. So that's a supercontinent. It really did exist in the ancient past. As far as the intelligent life, that's even more controversial. But the images in Mexico indicate that there were these ages at that time. I think that by the sound of it, obviously Earth has been around a lot longer than what I originally thought. So it's obviously been through some trials and tribulations in its lifetime. There's, I suppose, evidence there that if we continue to wreck this planet the way we are, that somehow the planet will survive and carry on, and then there'll be another intelligence after us? All I can tell you is the following. The Earth has suffered a number of extinctions and ice ages. That is well known. The last major extinction, which at the end of the Cretaceous, was when this rock came in from space and killed the dinosaurs. That was 66 million years ago. That killed, what, 90% of all the life species on the Earth, not just humans. And the Earth recovered from that. I don't know if we are able to kill that many species, but I guess we have the technology to do it today. But in any event, apparently the Earth has suffered a number of these things. Do you want to get more fantastic? 
Go on. I mean, I can tell you more stuff. You want to be more I, fantastic. I feel, I feel like you're holding back from us. Just let it go. <laughs> Are you sure now? You really want go to hear on. this? Go on, give it to <laughs> us. <laughs> let me see. Uh, well, the point is, I, I, we're getting so far afield from the hill forts. The hill forts, I believe, are proof that intelligent life did exist at the time of the dinosaurs. I'm convinced of that. My work in Mexico indicates that they did exist at a civilization in Mexico upwards of 100 million years ago. The artifacts of the cone-headed individuals in Mexico indicates that they existed more than 750 million years ago. So now we're going back three quarters of a billion years, but we're not finished. There was a woman in the United States who uh, wrote about a supposed pyramid that's in, of all places, the state of Alaska. Now, why would anyone want to build a pyramid in Alaska is beyond me. However, if you use plate tectonics, you could date that pyramid without ever finding it. That's going to sound strange. But since we use the motion of the plates, we could make a basic assumption. In Chichen Itza, the ancients built a pyramid to point to the orbit above the Earth of the Earth's debris field. Well, the Earth's debris field goes back four and a half billion years. So the continents have moved. Well, if there was an intelligent life at the time of supercontinent Rodinia, they would have done the same thing. They would have built a, a pyramid to point. It would act as a geodetic reference, basically for making maps of the Earth and everything else that they would do because it acts as a reference point. They would build that at the point of closest approach of this orbital debris field because it marks that point on a map. And they need to know everything about that point, altitude above sea level, latitude, longitude, everything. So now you have a reference for all kinds of maps and engineering and building. And everything is done on a standard reference point, not different reference points. You could ask yourself the question, if there really was a pyramid in Alaska, and I don't know if there is one, uh, where is it? Uh, I had a latitude and longitude uh, in, near Mount McKinley. I simply asked, when would... Alaska would have Alaska, that point in Alaska, been under the closest approach of the debris field, which would have been today, it would be at Salt St. Marie on the border of the United States of Canada. And I calculated a number of 825 million years. Now, wow. I had a twin brother who passed away. He said my mathematics was wrong. It should be 864. In either case, we're looking at a civilization, not 750 million but over 800 million years old. Is that fantastic? That absolutely is. Okay, so the pyramids in Egypt then, let's say, because these are ones that I can picture. Well, they're they're that young. I know about. They're young. I estimate them at 28.5 million years. So were they Go built ahead. looking at that debris field as well, or were they looking at aligning themselves with other stars? The ancients, <laughs> that's a good question. Both. The, they did that both. The debris field, the pyramids were aligned with the debris field, but they were also aligned with other stars. But the biggest issue is we have to go back to the ancient past. And these constellations were different in the ancient past than they are today. People see, that's one of the things with, with p the, these popular writers, even our scientific work, they think in terms of the human age of 50,000 years or 10,000 years or 200,000 years, they don't think in terms of millions of years. I was able to date Giza to 28.5 million years, which is young compared to what I'm doing. So to answer your question, there was uh, they were designed to come under the debris field. The debris field would cross the, 
the large pyramid in the center of the three. Uh, what's the name of it now? I forgot the name of it. Uh, that's uh, that's what it was designed, but it looks like it goes back 28.5 million years. Uh, did I answer your question? You absolutely did. So have you presented your theory to mainstream science, to, to mainstream academics? And if so, what have their impressions been on it? I'll answer your question this way. I have given lectures at college campuses. Academics have refused to attend, but I've spoken to academics face-to-face. I've spoken with them on the telephone, and I've sent messages, either emails or text messages, back and forth to them. They are reluctant to accept my stuff, and the reason they are is because they have to move as far away from their current discipline as possible. They don't want to risk their careers their tenures, their pensions, that type of thing. But they find it interesting. And not only that, everything that they've done would almost be moot because you'd have to go back and do everything over have again. to redo their you? work, yeah. Yeah. Well, see, that's true. Uh, well, that, have you ever heard of a man by the name of Emmanuel Velikovsky? No. No. Emmanuel Velikovsky, this guy. You can look him up on the internet. It's fascinating. This man wrote a book in the year 1950. I know. I was I was only a young lad then. I'm an old man now. But anyways, you can look him up. He wrote a book called World in Collision. It was a bestseller. He lived in London. He was, uh, I think, Russian. Then he came to the United States. He, he was actually attacked by mainline science versus theories. He said the planet Venus left Jupiter and harassed the Earth and Mars and was responsible for the biblical catastrophes in the, in the scriptures. <laughs> it was fascinating. <laughs> but the thing is, if you posit a date not 3,500 years ago like he did, but a date of 750 million years ago like I did, the things that he claims that happened are very possible. because. The ancient artifacts indicate that the solar system was different than it is now, seven to eight hundred million years ago. It keeps getting stranger and more bizarre, but it does. And and one of the reasons I think the ancients built with massive stone blocks is they wanted something to remain of their civilization so that future civilizations would know that they were here. That's what I think. And I believe this, there was something major happened in our solar system that destroyed life on the planet, and what we have is what's left, and that had to evolve into ourselves. That's the best I can do right now. That's pretty good. (laughs) That's pretty damn good. This has been an eye-opener for me because I've always had sort of a lot of questions which I haven't found answers to. They're not necessarily intelligent questions, but I think that any question that causes someone to think... Oh, no, I think your questions are very intelligent, and they're very to the point. Please, you know, I'd like to encourage you and your readers to email me. My email address is black, B-L-A-C-K, small b, lowercase, the numeral two, and the word tell, T-E-L-L, black to tell, at yahoo.com. Feel free to email, email me at will. I'll do the best I can to answer as many emails as I can. Black, numeral two, and the word tell. I also have a blog. There's 93 essays on the blog. You're welcome to read it. It's free of charge. It's uh, blacktotell.wordpress. That's W-O-R-D-P-R-E-S-S dot com. Anyone can look that up. 
They could read anything I have to say. No one has to agree with me, but it's there if you want to read it. Well, like I said, this has been an absolute eye-opener. Where do you go from here? Where do you go next? Have you got any other sort of goals or anything else you want to try and uncover oh, yes. with this? I'm trying to finish my new book. I'm trying to finish my new book. I was supposed to finish it two years ago, but I've been quite ill. And so I want to finish that this year if my health could, level, could stabilize. And I want to go on tour and give lectures. I'd love to come visit UK, but there are financial issues. And we have this COVID thing. So I don't know what's going to happen then. That's what I want to do. And then I want to redo some other work in South America. I, haven't, I need to do more work in South America. But I'm, I'm already in trouble in the United States with uh, <laughs> American anthropologists and people. Well, some of my dating it really throws them for a loop. In the United States, in a place called California, you know, California is where there's Hollywood and all kinds of strange beings that exist <laughs> in the United States or in California. <laughs> but... <laughs> Uh, I've visited California. The beaches are beautiful. The weather is beautiful. The taxes are not. But that's another story. But anyways, <laughs> there's a place called Blythe, California. They have intaglios. They're like engravings on the ground or petroglyphs on the ground. I was able to date those petroglyphs to 50,000 years ago, and I got myself in trouble. Nobody says, no, you're wrong. How can you do that? Then I looked at something called the Anasazi. The Anasazi are the ancient ones or the ancestral Palabians or Native Americans. And I don't think they are. I think they're others. I dated them at 50,000 years. And I got into trouble with that one. And then I dated some Indian mounds. You know what Indian mounds are? Yeah, well, the Indian yeah. mounds are basically large hills made by the Native Americans. No one knows who or why they built them. Well, they're currently dated at 5,000 years. But there's some mounds in Iowa and Wisconsin that are shaped like animals and birds and things like that. They're called the effigy mounds, and they would come directly under the orbital line of this debris field at a date of over 16 million years ago. Uh, I wrote to numerous newspapers in the Midwest to tell them about it. None of them published my stuff, even as letters to the editor, because it's very difficult for them to understand it. See, we have been raised to believe what mainline science tells us, and what mainline science tells us is incorrect because they're of the specialized nature. I think that's the beauty of things like, you know, I'm not blowing our trumpet here, but podcasts in general and the internet is that if you'd have gone back sort of 50 years or so, uh, you come across as an intelligent, well-read, you know, researcher. It's not like you can't string a sentence together, but you wouldn't have been given, like you said, the forum to put your work across. Well, I'm very happy to be on your podcast. I'm very happy to talk to you fine folks from the UK. Uh, by the way, my blog is visited by many people from the UK. It's also visited by people from Australia and Canada and all over the world. And I welcome you all to email me, again, black2tel at yahoo.com. And uh, Shelley, I hope you email me again. And I enjoy reading them. And Bella, don't let, don't be upset at the strange foibles of Americans. We're a new country. Don't worry about it. <laughs>
Yeah, we we can't comment on things like that (laughs) as much as we'd like to. (laughs) You've told people where they can get hold of you, and I just want to reiterate what you said there. I've spoken to Mr. Black over the internet. We've had communications, and he is 100% open to your emails. He wants to hear from you. He wants that dialogue, and I think that's the way that we can get things moving forward. Hopefully, you're talking about a trip to the UK you know, maybe at some point in Mexico. Hopefully we've got people out there that can help fund things like that to further research. And if so, obviously they can get in touch with you via that email address that you've given as well. Uh, I, I encourage people to also read my blog. It's blacktotel.wordpress.com. Excellent. Thank you very much. Mr. Black, you've been amazing. We've really enjoyed talking to you today. Well, Listen, I, I have all kinds of things. If you want me back again, I'd be more than happy to come back. I enjoyed visiting, and uh, best to both of you, and best to the UK, and best to Britain. Uh, well, <laughs> not like you're, it's Britain and Wales, and uh, you're still the UK, and you're with Britexas. Well, good luck and success on that. Thank you very much indeed. Bye-bye. Well, that was pretty cool. Interesting. Gives you some food for thought. Yeah, it does. It's really difficult, isn't it, to kind of imagine that far back, that there was something here that far back, and that maybe, as we said during the show, the Earth kind of goes through all of these trials and tribulations and goes through these catastrophic events, and then somehow we all make it back again. It gives us a little bit of hope, I think. Well, my mind is totally blown because of the fact that Earth may- maybe had rings like Saturn. That's just awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And in fact, I read an article last night, funnily enough, about a young Welsh girl. She's only four years old who went through an area in Barry in South Wales. She actually came across a fossil of a dinosaur footprint. You know, it's cool. I wonder if they go down the road a bit if they'll find the other footprint. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was only a small dinosaur. Unless he was playing hopscotch or something. (laughs) That's interesting, though. Where is the other footprints? How how did one survive? Yeah. Because it's like in a rock. It's it's actually, there's this big rock, and it's actually just this footprint on this big rock. So, yeah, what happened to the other footprint? I never thought of that. Interesting. Well, if you've got any ideas, come back to us and let us know about that. But don't forget, head along to our website, www.wearewackywonderful.co.uk, and have a look at the work that we've put in on there. Don't forget, you can also visit Mr. Black's blog. That link is going to be available via our website as well, and also in the show notes of this show. So please scroll down on your podcast player and have a look at our show notes. You can follow us via Instagram, which is at Weird Wacky Wonderful Podcast. Facebook, we are at Weird Wacky Wonderful Stories Podcast. Twitter, we are at the WWW Podcast. And of course, you can mail us, as always, on mail at weirdwackywonderful.co.uk. So everybody's got that weird, wacky, wonderful bit down. Listen, you came up with the idea of that. I know. I wish it had been something just called podcast, you know? Well. I wonder whether someone has just created a podcast called Podcast. Because then whenever you searched a podcast, that one would always come up. Hmm. Maybe the first person who ever did a podcast just called it Podcast. I don't know, but that's a really good search engine optimization right there. Call your podcast Podcast. Well, go look it up. If you are looking to start your own podcast, by the way, you can again head along to our website where you will find a link that will actually give you some money off Buzzsprout to actually start your own podcast. Hey, we're just giving you guys everything right now. Okay, Bella, say goodbye to the lovely people. Goodbye, lovely people. And we will see you again next time. Don't forget to stay weird, weird, wacky, wacky and and wonderful. wonderful.